Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to my podcast. You know, this is my happy place, having conversations with some of my most favorite people. Innovators, resistors, artists, those who push boundaries, and often those fearless enough to fight for justice and equality. I want to know what inspires them and what fuels their passion and how that passion manifests itself. This is Radical Musings. For this inaugural episode, I couldn't be more excited to talk to one of the most powerful women I've ever met. She is a Hollywood icon a true original, best-selling author, and she's also one of the greatest activists I've ever met in my life. She inspires me daily. She quite literally wrote the book on activism, What Can I Do?, using her visibility and voice to push for climate change. Here is my dear friend, Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, one of my heroes, one of my and my friend for many years. You've written this book, What Can I Do? And I remember you calling, and it was a time when your brother had just passed, Peter, and you were really in a in a sad, dark place. And you said, "Let's take a road trip up to Big Sur," and and um and then you said, "And Keener's coming," which was Catherine Keener, and the three of us went and embarked on this five-day journey up to Big Sur. From this trip, you wrote this extraordinary book that is the, the Bible for, uh, for anybody who wants to know anything about climate change. Now I'm listening to it for the second time. You've got scientists and activists and everybody. and it's, it's the facts that are really happening and that we are really truly in a crisis. And that's the conversation that we had when we were going up north. I want you to talk about what inspired you other than the fact that the world is, we're, we're dying um, if we don't do something. All the activism you've done, and my God, you've done it all. This really seems to be the most important thing you've ever done. Well, uh, maybe it is. Yeah. I mean, my activism has had different focuses over the years, depending on if I was married, <laughs> if I was... <laughs> You know, it's been on women and empowerment, and it's been against the wars, and but it's been environmental all through it. I mean, and we have known each other for many, many decades, you and me, Rosanna. And, you know, I've always, like you, I've always been concerned about the environment. And as time went on, I knew the climate crisis was getting worse, and I didn't know what to do. You remember as we were driving up there, it's about, what, a five-hour drive or something, and Keener kept saying, what am I supposed to do? Where are the leaders? Somebody tell me what to to do. And I felt just terrible because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to answer her. The same day that we left, a galleys, a, an unbound um, galley of Naomi Klein's book called um, On Fire, a, 
the burning case for a Green New Deal had just arrived on my doorstep and I brought it with me and I started reading it as soon as we got there. And that book um, made me realize what to do, that, I, that, that the important thing was to help people understand the urgency of the crisis. And as Greta Thunberg said, leave our comfort zone. And I remember I, I, I was shaking. I was so excited as I was reading this book and realizing that I had to actually put my body on the line. And then, and then I told you and Catherine, and the fact that I told you meant now I had to do it because <laughs> I had committed myself. And we talked about where I was going to do it and what I was going to do. And I have footage of you, of my camera, because I was, because I, I had to sneak it in because I looked at, at Keener and I said, I'm filming this because we're watching something take place. We were watching activism actually get born. born in front of us. It was extraordinary moment. And I called, uh, well, I called Annie, Annie and the, um, you know, not Leonard very good of, of Greenpeace, not very good, uh, uh, phone signals up there. It was hard to walk around your house trying to figure out where I could get a good signal. A terrible and reception. I finally got a hold of Annie Leonard and I said to her, okay, Annie, she's the director of Greenpeace. I said, I'm, I'm going to move to Washington DC and camp out for a year and protest. And you called Naomi, Naomi Klein. And then and Annie yeah. said, well, yeah. I'm so, that's great, Jane. I'm so happy you want to put yourself out there like that, but it's not allowed anymore. You can't do that anymore, but we're going to, let's get on a conference call. And so the next day it was Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org and Naomi and the environmental lawyer, Jay Halfen. And it was at, at Esalen. And I got I got an hour's worth of quarters, and and so we plotted it all on on a red lacquer phone booth outside at Esalen, and and decided that it would be once a week on Friday, and and I went, and and it it happened, and it was the most exciting thing I ever did. It was we didn't know if it was going to work, but it gradually began to gain traction and take off. Well, Keener and I came um, in October and in December for your birthday, um, uh, which was, and I will never forget that you were arrested. Um, that was my fifth time. When we picked you up the next morning, waited for you to come out, which was quite a lot of hours before they let you out in the morning. And there you were saying that, you know, cockroaches were going all over my body. She was on, you were on a hard, hard uh, metal slab. You heard a lot of people that may have had mental illness that were, shouldn't have been in that jail and needed help. And, and, you know, the one thing I have to say, even with my little funky house and, and Big Sur, um, you never complain. And it was quite a lesson for me. I'm Jewish, so I have a little bit of a complainer. But I've never heard you complain about anything. And that's just a virtue. It really is. I learn a lot from that and try very hard to, you know, aspire to not be a complainer. <laughs> do you know, when COVID hit, um, we've continued to do the Fire Drill Fridays virtually. Every Friday, we just had one today. And in September, we had how much, how many people? It was a million 700,000 people followed oh. Fire Drill Friday. It's growing. It's growing. We've watched yeah. it grow. It's so uh, fantastic. Uh, your birthday, this last birthday that you had in December, I we we all got arrested and the Reverend Barber was there, you know, for the Poor People's Campaign, who I, I love so much. And I'll just never forget this moment where everybody was sitting and singing, We Shall Overcome. 
And and you looked and you said, this is the best birthday I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a beautiful scene. It was. So, in the shadow of the Alexander Calder statue in the Hart Senate building, there were hundreds and hundreds of us, and Reverend Barber started to sing. Yeah. And it was so beautiful. Yeah. I love that, man. I know you just did the Jude Barrymore show, and I was like, oh, I really wanted to talk to her about her love life. Who's because, mine? You know, uh, because oh, Drew's. <laughs> no, you. Yes. What yes. love life? <laughs> the documentary, the HBO documentary with Jane in five parts, which is, for me, was I just love that documentary so much because it really shows the woman that you became. But I think a lot of people think, oh, the men formed you, but it's actually you formed them. I met you when I was, gosh, I, I remember it was your house in Santa Monica backyard. And there was, the- I was married to Tom Hayden, right? Yes. You and Tom. And I, and I had been invited into the Hollywood young, young Hollywood yeah. committee and went up to Sacramento with you a couple of times and, yeah. and Tom, cause I was always a fan of yours, of course, but seeing you in action and how you are as a human being with just, you don't have an air about you that is above anybody. And that's so Well, it sure important. helps if you're an organizer to not feel you're above anybody. Yes, exactly. I mean, no, my problem was, was always uh, gaining confidence. I didn't have any confidence. But I certainly never have felt that I was above anybody. Yes. I'm, I'm uh, you know, when I, during Fire Drill Fridays, when so many incredibly smart activists and experts and scientists came to speak at the rallies and the teach-ins, um they, they their lives and what they are doing and and what they're communicating to us that's what's important i'm just you know i i view us celebrities as a way to as a way to um take their voices and spread them out and to a wider audience. You know, I use, I use the metaphor repeater. Repeaters are the antenna, the towers on the top of mountains that pick up signals, weaker signals in the valleys that can't reach a wider audience. And that's what those towers are. We're like that. We're, we're repeaters. We, we make it possible for people who know more than we do and have experienced more than we do to allow them to reach a broader audience. And that that's what I loved so much about Fire Drill Fridays is celebrities were introducing the experts. That's that's yes. our role. That's a good role to have. It was it, it was, was really, really important, important to use your, your voice as you, you have this kind of platform. platform. When, when you, you were, were living, living in France, France and I, it was was, was it Simone Signore that got you into wanting to do something and be an activist? Was it actually her? Well, she um, when she was married to uh, Yves Montand, he, he was doing, this is in the early 60s, I guess, he was doing a one-man show on Broadway, and she was in New York with him. And we went to the Algonquin for cocktails, and I got to meet her and, and him, because my fa- my, I went with my father, because they both admired my father a lot. And so years later, when I became an actor... And I was, I went to France to do a movie. It was Simone Signoret who like took me under her wing because I was Henry Fonda's daughter. And, you know, just sort of had me around the house a lot. And I was exposed to all of her friends. Costa Gavras at the time was one of their, their best friends. And, and so as time went on and she always stayed in touch, um, she used to bring me to demon rallies. 
And there, you know, rallies like here, only I remember there, there was always a stage and it would be Simone de Beauvoir and it would be Jean-Paul Sartre and it would be these big minds, these incredible people talking about what was wrong with the war in Vietnam. And I really didn't know very much about Vietnam. So it was through these French intellectuals who had really literally put their bodies on the line. Simone used to lie on the train tracks to keep the trains from pulling out with the various, with soldiers and with military equipment to, to then reach the ports where they were going to go to Vietnam to fight. She, she would lie down on the train tracks. She, she was really something. And she never proselytized. I mean, she never said, you have to, become an activist or anything. She just exposed me to these people and these ideas. And and then I had the good fortune to meet a bunch of sailors. I mean, not sailors, soldiers who had been in the army, who had been in, in, in Vietnam and had deserted. We call it resisting. And they had come to Paris as resistors, and they were looking for places to sell. This is a nice story. This one guy, Dick Perrin, um, he was one of the guys, and we've stayed in touch. And after Alexander Calder, the great sculptor, died, Dick Perrin called me and he said, I just watched Sandy Calder's obituary on television, and I realized that was where we all stayed. Calder made his farm a home for all the American soldiers, and they had no idea who he was. They wondered what all, what are all those big metal things and <laughs> swinging in the wind? It was Alexander Calder. That's why it meant so much to me that when we all protested in the Senate Hart building, there was Alexander Calder's statue looming over us. But it was those soldiers that um, exposed me to what was wrong with Vietnam. They gave me a book to read called The Village of Ben Sook by Jonathan Shell, and it shook me so much. And I went and visited, I went out to the country to see Simone, Signore. And I remember when she opened the door, she said, I've been waiting for you. And I said, well, I finally realized that the Vietnam War is wrong. And I need you to explain the history to me. And she really taught me the history of how it was a French colony and the, and the French fought to try to keep it as a colony. The Vietnamese won at Dien Bien Phu. And then we came along and tried to do the same thing. And, and the French, of course, were, were like, are you guys kidding? There's no way that you're going to be able to win. And I used to think, well, they're sour grapes just because they didn't win. But Simone helped me understand what it was about Viet the Vietnamese and their history that made them almost invincible, you know, that there was no way we were going to win. And she never pushed me. She just gave me the information and... And that's when I packed up and left and moved back to the U.S. and became an activist in the GI movement. Well, uh, one of my favorite art pieces is uh, your uh, mugshot. My mugshot? <laughs> <laughs> From 19, 1970. I think you saw it. It's like a big painting and it's pink. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. But, you know, during COVID and this time, because you've been so focused uh, on Fire Joe Friday and the climate emergency that we're living in right now. Do you feel hope? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, look at the look at what happened after George Floyd was murdered. The uprisings that happened all over this country with so divert it was so diverse. 
age age differences, disabilities, people in wheelchairs, the, you know, communities in California that are all white, and there were people marching with Black Lives Matter. That brought me great hope. Yes. I agree with you. I agree. It was so inspiring. It still is. And um, we all felt, we saw that and felt his not being able to breathe. I can't breathe. And now with Breonna Taylor, these guys are not being charged with murder. I mean, more than ever, you've never seen where we're at. America's never been here. We've this never has seen never this. happened before. No, this, our, this has never happened. Right? The this institutions that have held up American democracy for hundreds of years is seriously threatened by this administration. And the COVID crisis has exposed to people who may not have known it before the depth of the inequality in this country. And I think that that's part of why the outpourings around the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, why they were and continue to be so robust, was people... People are, are really realizing now the, um, the, the problems that are facing us. It's, it's, a, it's, it's many, many crises that are interrelated that are all arriving at the same time. But people are also awakened in a way that they weren't before. And, and so I, I, am, I am hopeful. You know, when you look at right now, there are states where people are voting and they are waiting hours and they're just waiting. They're bringing chairs and snacks, and they've got their masks on. And people are committed to voting. And that's what has to happen. We have to have a landslide victory for Joe Biden so that there is no question about who won. Yes. Yeah. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I think I cried for 24 hours. I mean, it's just it's still just talking about it. It's just so intense and that... That, that we're having to deal with this moment where they're trying to force feed us someone. So but what then happens? again, we have, to th- we have to look at the fact things are really bad for Trump right now. Yeah, yeah. And really, okay. really bad. You have over 500 top leaders, military men, four-star generals, chiefs of staff, you know, former, I mean, cabinet. FBI. <laughs> so many important people who worked for Trump, were in the Trump administration, um, or who are in charge of our military are coming forth and public with their names and saying, folks, this guy is incompetent and dangerous. Do not vote for him. Vote for Joe Biden. Plus all the lawsuits that are coming after him and his family, you know, plus his, his niece is suing him. Um, Oh, are you, yeah, you had her on uh, fire. Things fire are not great. going yeah. well for the president. He's behind in every single state. Um, and, and so that should, you know, that should boost our hopes. I saw, oh, I mean, you don't want to put down people who are, will follow this man. I just can't believe it. But there was one woman who, you know, who had her Trump shirt and her Trump sign and then was wearing a gigantic mask of a gigantic penis. Did you see this photo? He, all she had on her face was this giant penis on her <laughs> on her face. And this was the Trump supporter as she was holding her sign for Trump. I was like, what is this? What is the message here? 
I, I, I like you. I mean, I get very anxious. I haven't been sleeping well. You, you were a sleeper, but I am not sleeping. But what I love today in your Fire Joe Fridays was uh, the woman um, Colette. Colette. Pinchon battle. She was so inspirational in everything she said, um, and but what, uh, with prayer and music and all the things that kind of can get you out of anxiety. You know. Well, she made a very important point that yeah. I think people need to realize. All over this country, the people and there is the low income communities, communities of color, black communities are on the front lines of the climate crisis, whether it's at the bottom of a valley in West Virginia or Kentucky that's been inundated with flooding or hurricanes on the coast or, you know, the fires in California. There are many people who are suffering PTSD. I mean, they are. I mean, it's hard to wrap our hearts and minds around what are happening, and they're really suffering. And what I loved about what she said was that they use prayer and drumming and song and poetry to bring people back into their higher selves. To have some stillness and calm and to calm our center. It was, I loved what she said so much today. You know, Diane Lane and I joined you the Fire Joe Fridays in Los Angeles when you finally came here. And we went down to Long Beach to the oil refineries. Wilmington, yeah. Yes, in Wilmington. And, you know, I, I knew they existed and they were a big, horrible polluter of Southern California. But when you actually saw with your own eyes people's homes that have the drill in their backyard and the impact that it's had on these communities and their families. And, you know, those wonderful man that was speaking and he was wearing the ashes of his wife around his neck. Everybody's got asthma or some kind of debilitating disease from the toxicity of these refineries. Can you speak on that? What's happening with communities, especially communities of color that are really the most people that are impacted by, you know, it's important for people to realize that. um, And we know this because a study was released in 1987 that showed that the fossil fuel industry, how does it make decisions about where it will put its refineries and so forth Um, when there is gas to be fracked and oil to be drilled? They deliberately put them in communities of color and low-income communities, feeling, knowing, believing that these communities don't have the power to resist, to do anything about it. And these communities are called sacrifice zones. The fossil fuel industry is perfectly fine with just writing them off. And literally people, I mean, they're dying. Young girls having to have hysterectomies because they live next to an oil well or a refinery. And um, it's one of the things that we're pressuring Governor Newsom about, that we absolutely have to have a 2,500-foot health and safety setback um, between he's got to stop frac- fracking <laughs> between fracking and, and oil and the homes and the schools and the and the churches and the playgrounds um, Ventura County as of two weeks ago has a 2500 foot setback oh great that's wonderful now we have to have it happen all through California California oil is dirtier and da- more dangerous for the environment than the Alberta tar sands oil and yet Governor Newsom is, he, he, I think it was like 170 new permits he signed 
for drilling and fracking this year. I heard about that. And every time he writes, I, I, I write something underneath his tweet about that because I'm appalled. And it's so unconscious, especially where we're at, given that, you know, the whole California is on fire. It just doesn't make any sense at all that he's doing that. So what happens is somebody is pressured financially to do that. What is that? Like, why would he make that decision? Well, it's hard to know. Jerry Brown, for all, both of them, kind of great on, on, the, on, the, on the demand side of the fossil fuel problem, uh, the climate crisis problem. You know, they're all about solar panels, uh, solar plants in the desert, windmills, wind generators, wind turbines. Um, you know, they're big on all that. I mean, Newsom just did something really good. Yesterday, he issued a decree that um, n- no new cars after, I think it was 2035, will be sold that are not electric. You can keep your c- combustion engine car, but any new cars have to be all electric. I mean, that's great. And and Jerry Brown was very good about those things. But when it comes to stopping the drilling and the fracking, both of them won't do it. And it's hard to know why. I know that one reason is because fossil fuel industry is, for the most part, it's unionized. So these jobs are good paying jobs. I mean, you can earn upwards of $100,000 in the fossil fuel industry. The green sustainable sector is not unionized. So you're, you know, you're, it's it hard be? to say, to, it be? it's hard to say can to workers, be? you're going to move from a $100,000 a year job to a $40,000 a year job. So, you know, we, we have to do all we can to get those, the, the sustainable green sectors of energy unionized so that workers can move and be trained to go from fossil fuel to, you know, to the, to the new energy sector and not have to lose any money and lose the ability to support their families. So, you know, that's one concern that he has, has to do with jobs and labor. And while so many labor unions are in support of actions to stop climate, the climate crisis, you know, the AF of LCO, the, the, the building trades are, they stand with their workers and they're not in favor of the new technology. They're just not. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not without its challenges. I understand that, but the future is at stake. And if California, we're the, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. So if the governor moved to stop all new, drilling for oil and fracking for gas in California, it would send a signal to not only the rest of the United States, but the rest of the world. You know, when when we put regulations on car emissions, for example, that affects Detroit. They have to, because our market is so big, they have to change the way they make cars. And that, so that accrues to the benefit of everybody, not just Californians. So it's going to he could become the major climate champion of the world if he did what was right and we're pressuring him to do so. Do you think that I mean and I know that you've uh, had conversations with Biden that he's definitely moving towards uh, really caring about the environment in a way that we haven't heard before and I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, but look, you know, there's a lot of you know young people they're so idealistic and they think, well, we were for Bernie and Biden isn't Bernie and so we're not going to vote. Well, here's what you say. You know, voting is choosing your opponent. 
you know, who would you rather have in office that you then have to force to do what's right? Wouldn't you rather push a centrist than fight a fascist? Exactly. Exactly. And um, and also Bernie is telling his supporters to vote for Biden. Boy, he gave a speech last night that was just incredible. It was the best speech I've heard him give. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having uh, this new administration come in and clean our country up and our, our lives up and give us some hope because so many people are depressed and sad that suicide rates have gone sky high, especially in young people right now because of uh, they're feeling hopeless. Well, that's and why in- it's important to be an activist yes. because the minute you start doing something and knowing that you're making a difference despair that's why i wrote the book despair lifts and you you start to feel good because you're making a difference you know this i'm sure that you like like most of us have seen documentaries whether it's about the suffrage movement or the the civil rights movement or the farm workers or whatever and you see people you know being being beaten or the you know with hoses and dogs and jail and all the things and you wonder to yourself, would I have been brave enough to to stand up the way they did? Would I have been brave enough to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge? Well, guess what? We don't have to ask ourselves that anymore. We are living in a documentary moment right now. This is the time when we can take action and feel good that we are doing our utmost so that we can look into our grandchildren's eyes and say, yes, when push came to shove, I did everything I can. That's how to get over depression. Right on. Well, you know, Jane, I got a gas mask. I have a, my lawn blower because when everything was happening up in Portland, I was like, they're coming here and I'm going to be standing with the wall of moms. I mean, definitely. Um, so tell me now you, you have a new grandbaby. And I, I want to see that baby someday. I'm sure you can't go around the baby because of COVID now. But He was a month old when I went to D.C. It was really hard. And, um, and now I can do FaceTime with him. I've yeah. been over there, but I have to keep my distance. It's really hard. Oh, you can't hold him. No. For your safety or his safety? His safety. I hear that the newborns are not getting this. Is that true? Uh, we don't know, you see, that we don't know enough about it. First, if we were saying young people can't get it, well, that's proven wrong. I mean, the way it spread and the way they allowed it to spread is very frightening. What's and strange. they? It's sinister. It's What's very they? sinister. He, huh? he, he allowed it he. to spread. Meaning he allowed it to spread and, and kept, you know, important equipment, you know, away from the doctors who are helping everybody. This How about what and- he said? Well, maybe COVID is good because now I don't have to shake hands with those deplorable people or disgusting people he called his fans. I know. I know. I don't know how anybody. It's could amazing. This man, it's, it's, I know. it's craziness. It's craziness. It makes me so crazy every day. But so what, what is giving you, okay, in relation, you're living in a quarantine way, getting ready to go back to Grace and Frankie? Middle of January, we'll go back. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, all, you know, the four leads in Grace and Frankie are all well over 70. I'm almost 83. And so we're old and we're, and at least me, some of us have, you know, compromised immune systems. So they have to be super careful. My son, Troy Garrity, is now working in a new series and he feels very safe. He said, you know, they're taking all kinds of precautions. Um, 
But we don't go back until mid-January, and I probably will remain in quarantine. I mean, I basically am not going anywhere until then. Have you gone out at all? Do you? I do. I work out. Um, yeah. I've gone to doctors, but I, I don't, you know, I've not gone to a restaurant or a movie or anything. No I have friends that have traveled. You I'm not gonna, like I wear a- gloves, yeah. Gloves and a mask. That's the one thing that's been horrible to see is the gloves and the mask were making more pollution. <laughs> and this kind of drives me crazy. And that's why I saw it too. Is also when we were getting arrested, they used all these plastic handcuffs. I was like, wait a minute, it's all plastic. So it's just never ending. You said something funny to me about being alone now and that you're, you're okay not being in a relationship. You feel happy not being in a relationship. Oh, Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not gifted at relationships. I don't think it's my strong suit. I tried. I mean, I, I gave it a, a good old try three times, marriages, and, you know, and I don't regret it for a minute, but I just, I don't, I don't have the gift. And um, I think you do have the gift. They just wanted, everybody wanted you to form you to be what they wanted you to be. And you actually tried to do that as much as you possibly could, but never lost you. Men get frustrated when they cannot completely control every aspect. And I think that's so wonderful that you never really allowed that. You always had your voice. You always did your work. And you did your speaking engagements and kept with your activism always. No. What? Not really. No, not with Ted. No, I didn't. No, I mean, I just. Okay. But you started a huge organization for young girls in uh, Georgia. Yeah. So that's. That was after. Ted and I split up. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, so I could were not him, become, I was an intellectual feminist for quite a long time, but I couldn't really become a, an embodied feminist when I was in marriages that were not democratic. <laughs> it was hard to be a feminist because why didn't I leave then if it wasn't democratic? And, um, you know, when I, the minute I became single, I went and saw Eve Ensler's production of the Vagina Monologues. When she played, it was the last time that she played all the characters. And I was by myself. And, you know, what was so great about that play is there were times when you just sobbed and times when I, you just laughed so hard. And it was during the time I was laughing because laughter, laughter pierces there's no self-censorship it pierces all your sensors and your you know your guards I was laughing unguarded and that's when my feminism moved from my head into my body Mm. and I became an embodied feminist and and I haven't looked back I don't have time to be in a relationship um and I'm 83 and and I'm vain and so even by candlelight I don't want to, <laughs> you know, it's time, it's vanity, and it's, um, I don't know, I've, I've, you know, I've pretty God, much done it all. Next, like, I've that? pretty much done it all, so why, why I don't need to, I've, I've tried all different kinds of relationships, and, and now I'm, pre- I, I don't feel lonely at all. I'm just prepared to move forward on my own, and I'm very happy with that. Well, you're you're the goddess that we all love and our inspiration. You have such a beautiful tribe of women in which I got to see while we were in holding um, after being arrested in Washington, D.C., the two times that I was there with you. And 
the women that you had that showed up for you on your birthday. Gloria Steinem sitting there with Gloria Steinem. Heather McTeer, Ai-Jen Poo. It was leaders of all these different movements coming yes. together for the climate. It was a real turning point, I thought. It was and it was, it was what the moment, they re- and they all showed up, though, for you, too, for your birthday to be a part of this and celebrate you and the work that you're doing in the world to bring to bring about uh, awareness in the climate change climate justice movement in a way that it has opened people's eyes i mean it really did wake people up you're getting the information out so everybody <laughs> got to get this book um it's called what get, can i do you know, what can i do it, what can i do and where can you get it is it's, it's, it's where it's you on, buy books it's on amazon now i got it on audible and so i liked listening to you read the book because it's intense. I mean, it's scientists and facts and it's like you saying it and I can take it all in and I have to hear it for the second time. (laughs) So right, Jane, I love you and I keep going because I don't know what the world would be without Jane Fonda. Thank you for letting me be part of your podcast. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. Love you, honey. Love you. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review Radical Musings to help other listeners find the show. And subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast to be alerted every time we post a new episode. Radical Musings is brought to you by Audio Up, produced by Krista Liney and Carla Braun, edited by Jeremiah Zimmerman, production support provided by Ashley Ardent, Sam Winter, Tyler Dorson, Emma Rappold, and Richard Regal. Thank you all so much. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.